This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast, where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. You're joined today by Rob Haver, founder and managing partner of Motive Partners, and Asana Beslos, the CEO and founder of Rock Creek. Welcome, guys. I'm going to hand it over to you. Rob, you're interviewing today, and we have a very special guest. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much, Sam. I am so thrilled. Asana, thank you so much for doing this. I've been following your career a bit, if I'm brutally honest, and I am full of questions about yourself, about what drives you about some milestones in your career and, and about also the world we live in today and, and some of the fascinating stuff you're doing. So I'm so excited. Thank you for joining us today here in this podcast. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Sam. I'm so excited to be with you today. And I'm very excited to also be with you, especially given all the entrepreneurial things you've been doing over the last two decades. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. So we should absolutely compare notes. I mean, it's just incredible from being the treasurer and chief investment officer of the World Bank, managing $100 million plus, billion plus, to really being able to sort of take that to the next level at other parts of your career. So, so if you don't mind, I would love to start a bit more about understanding you as a person and sort of what drives you. And if I look at JP Morgan, if I look at World Bank, Carlisle, and so on, and then, of course, starting your own firm 18 years ago. So how did it all happen? If you look back at some of your milestones, you want to share something with us on that? Sure. It starts at Oxford. I had a professor who started something called the Oxford Energy Club, and I was his assistant. So that's a long time ago. And, <laughs> wow. um, and one of the things he told me is, maybe you should try to become an expert in something, and why not natural gas? So that kind of stayed in my ears. And it went on to work at JP Morgan. And total coincidence, one of the people who was doing his doctorate at the same time as at Oxford was at JP Morgan. And I ended up being assigned to his group, the precursor to the MA group on energy. I had a great time at JP Morgan, the teamwork, the culture then, also the sense of learning. And of course, living in London and New York at the time when really the finance sector was booming. What I realized, though, is that I needed something else. I needed sort of a mission orientation. And I had studied development economics and international trade and taught when I was at Oxford. And my heart, I realized, was in doing something that had a mission orientation. That's how I ended up at the World Bank. And if you look at that World Bank, it's fascinating. So many vast resources and so much work on sustainable investing. Is that where the foundations were put in for your own entrepreneurial venture? If we go to Rock Creek, I'm so thrilled to understand a bit more about that, sort of a different kind of investment management firm. Were those roots formed in the World Bank? Yeah, actually, you know, I joined the World Bank as a YP, a young professional. I joined the energy department, ended up working with Diane Julius, who's not Dame Julius, and was the chair of Chatham House, chief economist at Shell and British Airways. And she was an early mentor of mine and started working on the sort of intersection of doing policy work and doing project work. I realized how much you could do in what is now called ESG, impactful investing, 
And that got me started to get interested in renewable energy, which is what I started doing at the World Bank. And we could really do a lot because a lot of the emerging markets, as you know, were growing their energy demand, putting in power plants, and had an early start on solar and wind plus clean natural gas, local natural gas as a backup, because even today, battery storage is not enough to have a backup for current renewable energy. So in a way, it was a coincidence. In a way, you could also create coincidences when I was at the World Bank in a way that I wish more people could today there. Was there a moment in time you woke up and you said, that's it, I'm starting my own firm. So this is, I know I got my concept. How do you come about going from such an amazing role, very senior role, very important, very impactful role into starting your own firm. And as you can imagine, I'm looking for the truth there because myself, (laughs) (laughs) I've been in those situations. So how did it all go? I mean, quite honestly, Rob, there was no simple click. I was really happy. I really loved my work at the World Bank. And it was a total coincidence in the sense that I had two friends who were on Wall Street who approached me and said, would you like to come and get back to Wall Street and do this particular uh, jobs? And I ended up going to Carlyle, actually, which, as you know, is one of the premier private equity groups and very entrepreneurial. And then I realized that, you know, there was space for a investment firm that could create customized portfolios for its clients, which is what we were looking for when I was at the World Bank. So it sort of took me back to the World Bank trying to recreate what I was missing as a partner in the outside world. And I think while that gap had been there, I can't really say there was a click moment that made me think of creating Rock Creek. I think it was really a gradual process. There's a big difference between having your name on the front door and it being yourself, you're doing it. So what is the big, I'm sure it's a lot of satisfaction here building your own firm, but you didn't start off with 14 billion. You got 14 billion (laughs) Uh, on their management, that's huge. And as I was reading a book of a very large private equity provider a few weeks back, he was saying Fund One was a humbling experience, the beginning. By the way, I was talking to the founder of Blackstone, and he said it was a humbling beginning. He started with his first like couple hundred million dollar fund. He's now have half a trillion. What did it take and how did it all start? 14 billion, wow. You know, as you said, it is a very, very hard combination of working super hard and 24 by seven. And by the way, it's the same thing on day one as it is on any other day. And really, at the end of the day, having people who trusted our team. And most importantly, you know, you talk about the name on the door, but for me, it's always been about the team. Maybe that was my early JP Morgan training, which in those days, uh, you know, used to emphasize teamwork being more powerful than individual work. And I sort of found that same thing when I was at the World Bank, when I was in the derivatives group or the energy group or investing on the trading floor teamwork, I always felt is very important. So I think we were very fortunate to have a fabulous team when we started Rock Creek, which included people who had very strong tech, very strong data science, very strong computer science, as well as finance, and later on physics and math skills, and people who had very strong qualitative skills. And so being able to put that together and work together with people who are really remarkable, I think, was the reason that we have been successful and we are where we are. 
going to come back to that because you've done some sort of pioneering work here, also on the diversity side, and your teamwork has always been extremely important for you. If I read stuff around Rock Creek and your reputation sort of precedes you, this, this whole concept of investing in sustainable to drive sustainability, actually to drive positive returns. What's your philosophy behind that in terms of investing? I'm very intrigued about that. So Rob, I think that basically, if you look at most good investors, everyone is looking for long-term value creation, right? So what are companies, businesses, firms, just like what you did with the firms that you created that are going to be around in the long term? And even if they're inside a bigger firm, they thrive. And so I think the same goes for investing in other firms. And for us, it was really, whether it was in the public or private investments or venture and early stage investments, it was looking for companies that would be around in the long term and thrive in the long term. So I think maybe we were too early on themes like renewable energy. You know, renewable energy went through cycles where early on, you know, it was getting a lot of attention. And then around 2008, as you know, a lot of the investments did not do so well. So people were disappointed. And then in the last few years, again, it has had a comeback. And interestingly, even in the last uh, month or two, when we've been going through the crisis, it has continued to actually be a sustainable investment in many portfolios. So people are still continuing with a lot of the renewable energy investments. Same thing with health and education. I remember when I joined the World Bank, health sector in the World Bank was one of the weakest areas at the World Bank. It didn't attract the best people. By the time I left and Jim Wolfenson was the head of the World Bank, thanks to him and Elaine Wolfenson, who actually in many ways was an important partner to Jim, the health sector and the education sector at the World Bank were two of its strongest areas. And what you realize is that without those things working, without a really strong health sector, without a really strong education sector in many emerging markets, and now we're learning in developed countries, your economy cannot grow. And I think being early realizing those kinds of trends was important. And I have to tell you, though, a lot of eyes get glazed over, at least until, you know, about over a year ago, when you use those terms like ESG and sustainable investing. Yeah, absolutely. So it'd be fascinating because talking about ESG, you really are a champion when it comes to that. So it's also fascinating to see how is the dilemma between the LPs, the limited partners you have, and then how they relate to ESG and and how do you see the interconnectivity? And you just mentioned it quickly, when times are good, everybody wants to do certain things. When times get tough, it's interesting to see how people continue to focus on that. And more importantly, it becomes part of their lives. I've personally had a lot of opportunity the last couple of years to raise some capital. And finally, I'm excited to hear that somebody says, what's your ESG policy and so on. But at best, we are probably an okay follower. You've been a leader. So share some thoughts on that, if you don't mind. So I think thanks to more recently with the Business Roundtable, for example, that has been really important in getting the word, getting multiple stakeholders to be important, not just one of the stakeholders as well as as many of the biggest investors, whether they are the large sovereign funds or some of the Canadian plans or European plans, what you're finding is that everybody's really looking for long-term investments. So imagine if you had a lot of oil and gas, particularly oil and coal in your portfolio this year. If you were early in seeing the trend that people are moving away from oil, from coal, and that they're moving into cleaner fuels, your portfolio would be doing better. 
And it's really interesting when I was in Davos this January before the pandemic took off, really the CEOs of pretty much most major companies that I spend time with were talking not in a glib way about ESG and not in a marketing way about their ESG policies, but in a very real way. And if you look, a lot of the big energy companies like Shell are not calling themselves energy companies. They're not calling themselves oil and gas companies. If you start looking carefully at where they're spending their research dollars, they're spending it in areas related to renewable energy, a part of their businesses. So you're seeing that every company, whether it is the airport authority at Heathrow, or it is um, the airlines, or it is looking at energy efficiency, even on a, you know, we're talking on a day when oil prices are at their lowest ever. They've gone into negative territory due to some... Yeah, you have to explain that to me for for the audience. (laughs) When people say negative territory, I know what it means, but what does it actually mean in your opinion? Because this is kind of a, a unique moment in time, no? Yes. So I think oil prices being in negative territory is really a technical matter. Over the last month or two months, I've been talking about how the fact that we don't have enough storage is going to impact oil markets, and it has. So what has happened is that you know we expected getting into May that storage capacity for oil would be full. And as people's expectation of the economy was even more rosy early on in the crisis with the pandemic... I think oil demand has been even lower. And the fact that prices are lower, you're not going to go start your factory because there's no demand for it, or you're supposed to be not going to work. You're not going to be driving more because you're quarantining at home. So oil prices being low has not encouraged more use of energy in the last two months. As a result, the oil that is getting produced cannot go anywhere. So that is why people are using the term negative prices and also talking about you have to actually pay to get somebody to take your oil because they will have to store it. Now, this is technical, it's short term. And just to be clear, I mean, my expectation is oil prices will be somewhere in the $20 to $40 range. You know, we're not going back to the $60 to $80 range unless there's some little crisis or short term war in the Gulf or something. But that will be very short term. What is the correlation between oil prices, in your opinion, and the future of renewable energy? Or in general, how do you see that impacting the future of of how we consume energy? So what has happened is that renewable energy has become so incredibly cheap to produce, especially solar, and depends on where you're located with wind and other renewable energy. It's very economic now. Now, nothing, you know, competes with negative prices, which are just, you know, in these few days as futures contracts get priced. So I think putting that short-term dislocation aside, really looking at a sort of a 20 to $40 range of oil prices, I think most kinds of renewable energy will be able to compete. In fact, I think very few people know that Saudi Arabia, UAE are some of the biggest investors in, in solar plants, as we speak, Texas in the US is one of the biggest investors in solar plants. These are all oil producers, but they're realizing the future is renewable energy. And for example, one of my colleagues is working on a huge solar project in Saudi Arabia as we speak, and they just um, increased the size of the power plants by power of 10 times. So as we're speaking, oil prices are weak, but investors in renewable energy realize that the Gen Z and their own families, their own kids are going to demand of them a world that is a little bit cleaner, plus 
the fact that it's become economic. So you're not doing it for the goodness of your heart. You're doing it because it's economic. Is there a world without oil one day? I don't think so in our lifetimes or, you know, looking a little beyond that. I see a world where oil will be used very, very selectively in certain things. And every kind of energy has its pros and cons, right? So renewable energy has a lot of positive, but we're still waiting for the technology that allows you to store. So just the same thing we were talking about storage of oil. You know, oil, you can put it in tankers, park it in oceans or in storage in the fields or wherever. But renewable energy storage is yet not there. So for the time being, you need something to backstop. Now, batteries are going to be a really excellent way to backstop renewable energy, but you probably will need natural gas. I have more hope than oil itself, but there might be some uses that oil is more efficient than everything else. So you just have to look at, as it were, the pros and cons and do an NPV on what you get by using oil versus what you use by getting renewables. And if you find that you know, you're creating less energy in that particular situation, you might see tiny, tiny bits of oil. But again, I think that is why you're seeing the big oil producers diversify their sources of wealth. They realize that oil is not what it was in the 80s and 70s. So fascinating. And we have so many other things to talk about. So I don't want to take too much of your time up on this one. But maybe one more perspective from your side, when you take oil prices being very low, some of the renewable efficiency, but I still would argue, and then you tell me if, if you think that some of this renewable or one of the more eco-friendly is more expensive for the investor. Do you see an attitude change that it just not for the last dollar and that there is more of a conscience growing around ESG and around a better world? Or is it still the dollar for the dollar out there, in your opinion? I think what we will find, I don't know whether it is in three years or five years or 10 years or it's all upon us now, that good governance, good social responsibility and good valuations of the environment, water, and soil are going to be incorporated, not in, as an externality, but in actual calculations of the way people invest. So I think that what is really important is that what we're going through right now, for example, if labor was paid more, people could be paying for their health a little bit more. If our health sector was delivering accessible health and could have moved in a more nimble way to create the things we needed, like testing and masks, and rather than being stuck in mud, we would be in a different situation. So in effect, we're spending trillions of dollars as we speak, instead of having invested in some of the basic things that people have been fighting over the last many, many years. So I think what is very interesting and what this pandemic is bringing up is that issues like inequality are not just for soft of heart or people who are you know, studying these concepts. It actually impacts their lives. The virus goes everywhere. Princes and kings and prime ministers, as well yeah, as you know, homeless people get the virus. So it is something that affects everyone, and it's showing people that the world actually is a lot more interconnected. Yeah, and as horrible as what's going on, we should try to, and I'm sure you agree with me, see it as an opportunity to maybe prioritize or reprioritize some of the thinking out there for sure. Absolutely. Most of the guests on this podcast read our newsletter every week, so we thought you'd enjoy it too. It's called Brain Food. It comes out every Sunday morning and it's packed with all the things you need to know about financial services and technology. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. And let's talk a bit about that. The great lockdown 
uh, yes. as, as the IMF labeled it. What's your view on the impact on the global economy from where you're sitting right now? I think I'm an optimist at heart. And when people talk about how do you get something good out of the crisis, and I spent some time at Shell in their scenario planning group. So my optimistic scenario would be that we actually learn from this crisis that we need to change the relationship between labor and capital in terms of remuneration. And it might be that net profits to shareholders is lower, but actually the shareholders are often also pensioners of pension plans that are paying those same companies fees and things like that through private equity firms and other forms of asset management. So the point is that if you look at the economics, the whole value chain, It might be that we come up with a way where truly multiple stakeholders are benefiting, meaning people who work get paid a decent wage so that, you know, nurses don't have to buy their own masks or bring in their own cleaning products into the hospital and be at huge risk and put their lives right in danger. And at the same time, you are starting to learn how to use telemedicine. We're using how to use distance learning. We're having more podcasts like this because we can communicate so much better. We have all learned, not just our technology teams, everybody in every team has learned now to be a technology user. So we're the intersection of technology with fintech, which you're the big expert on, and education, health, logistics, energy, really everything that we're talking about. Look at gaming and things like that. So where you look at the intersection of tech and these kinds of things, it might be that we will be able to deliver better education to more people. And I'm still on the rosy scenario. (laughs) And be able to provide telemedicine and health sector in general, wellness, to many communities who do not have access today. A lot of investments in broadband. FCC just last week made it possible in the U.S. to provide broadband in a more accessible way in order to provide telemedicine to some rural areas. And investments in broadband will be really important. And, you know, investing in good companies that have a future versus zombie companies that have been kind of part of the ETF world and just get carried through good and bad. So investing actively, finding companies that are actually doing the right things and they don't put off, you know, 80% of their labor on the street the day that something negative hits them. So the rosy scenario is that equality improves the wages improve for the poorest part of the community and that all stakeholders are winners from this pandemic. And we end up with a better health situation, better education situation, cleaner air and great fintech so that a lot of the tools that you've created, Rob, become available and we're not using out-of-date tools, especially in the U.S. But I'd love to know what you think about that. I actually have to tell you also that I am an optimist. And it's not because it's naivete for my part, but it's also a true belief, and history points to prove that, that pivot points, pivot moments create opportunity and stuff. And we can go left, we can go right. I think if we go in that direction where we see this as an opportunity, and I think we will, by the way, to be crystal, I I absolutely believe that that's the case. Why? Because it's so existential. You just said it. I mean, there is nobody saved. I mean, you can go sit on your $200 yacht, you could still get infected or people could get on the street and by definition are going to be infected. So there is more to it than the last dollar. And it's good for everybody. And this is this ecosystem that's at work. And it's the same, you could argue, that happens in the world of ESG. It started more like a nice thing that might make sense 
to shaming you if you're not. So this whole idea where events lead to certain things, I think this will lead. And if it doesn't, that's very disappointing. And we all as individuals have to make sure that we do our part on that. And that, for example, the key question, how do you prioritize health versus economy? how we now finally know how they're interrelated. Now, sadly enough, you'll have political opinions and uh, movements that go in different directions. But I am convinced, like you, that this is an opportunity, but we all have to play our part. If it's the large capital provider, if it's the pension providers, and I feel I have a role to play, you have a role to play. So maybe on that note, how do you think we do it? But I would love to hear your other scenarios. So when you say, if I'm not optimist, because scenario building is, if we're not learning from that, so I'll, I'll let you spend a few minutes on that too. I think the other scenario is that what will happen is that a lot of the advantages of these huge government programs that are going out will all again, like in 2008, the majority of it benefit the finance sector. The few will get even wealthier. Private equity firms buy more doctors' offices that are going out of business and hospitals and reduce their costs and increase efficiency, as it were, by providing less service. Insurance companies, you know, doing the same. And basically, you're going to have a world that may not be so nice to live in, in terms of the social programs that won't, you know, because if you have the states, the municipalities, not able to take care of their homeless people or the more vulnerable or the young kids who got their lunch at school, who might have among them the next big tech brain, it's not going to be great. The fact that we heard today, and I hope that that rumor goes away, like many others that come in, that there will be no immigration into the U.S. You know, if it's a short term, you know, a week or two for political reasons is one thing. But the power of the U.S. has been in immigration. And many European countries, you know, have been more immigrant friendly. And that has also benefited their economies and their cultures and societies. So not that everything about immigration is positive, but being an immigrant myself, you know, I think that there's a lot that immigrants do bring to their new homes. And if you sort of go into a world that is not friendly to many things and not friendly to open trade, which, you know, trade itself had a lot of issues, you might get back into a situation where we're all very isolated. And China and Russia have shown that they do mean business and they are very, very aggressively as we speak. And as the international organizations have got weaker and have had less strong leadership, they have been able to take over a lot of space, as it were from people who had a stronger, not just moral, but economic model. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think we all have a role to play. We should push our politicians to rethink this stuff. And it's a very complex world. But what's interesting, Mark Andreessen wrote a great blog a week ago where he said yes. it's time to build. Exactly. I, I, I was it. Me too. I was sort of like blown away by it. And by also, again, the contrast between the opportunity, like this is such an amazing sort of like collective event, but it could be wasted. Like you could argue argue has been wasted historically. I truly believe, however, that there is this interconnectivity that is coming together. And there are, I would call it a grouping of people that are, in my opinion, hopefully are going to be so powerful that they can stop these populists and these sort of like, but time will tell, but at least we all have to play our role. And on that note, what do you think we can do? You and I, we both, I mean, I look up to you with what you've been able to realize. So in your role and in my role as sort of being a participant in this 
economical business and as investors, where we can do our part to be on the optimistic side of the scenario. I would love to know what your thinking is, but my maybe three points are, one, as just people living in any community to make sure that we're very involved with that particular community and we're doing, you know, whatever is needed in that community. In the one I'm living in, you know, food security is a very big issue right now. So, you know, that's one area where both with financial, but also helping people who are working in certain of the poor Ward 7 and 8 or, you know, others, we can help. That's just a minor way to help at a very personal level. In terms of what we can do more professionally, I think it is really time to work with other investors who like to, on the one side of their mouth, say that they believe in impactful and sustainable and inclusive ways of doing things and running their businesses. But in practice, they have been doing very little. I think it's time that the people who allocate capital get smarter about that. And for all of us, we say, you know, if you're just saying it and you're not showing progress, which is, by the way, one of the great things about your work is data and using data to show whether we're making progress or not. Are we making progress on those things? Because at the end of the day, if you want to have a very thriving consumer sector, and you have consumers who are dying and they are unable to buy anything because of their huge debt, whether it's student debt or car debt, which, by the way, for the first time is going up and people are not paying their car loans, which didn't even happen in 2008. You know, if we are in that situation, we need to make sure as banks, we are not having bad policies. We all become thoughtful and run the banks for the long term and actually do what we're saying we're doing. Yeah, it's very powerful when, when you say that, because at the end of the day, to your point, we all have a role to play. And it's small things. I mean, again, some people have large platforms, some people have small platforms, but it, yes. it's that lead by example. And then for us, it's also a bit, since technology, and as Mark said, it also software will eat everything. But what it really means is that through software and connectivity and data, bring it back to its simple form is an individual is becoming an individual again as part of a group and is recognized as such. So if we can, for example, create more transparent markets, more frictionless financial system that allows, to your point you made earlier, that the money is going to the right people and that the consumer or the person, the individual, and it could be a small, medium-sized business, really has optionality and that there is more a direct link between, it's almost like the open marketplace, and, and we won't, won't go there today, but I do believe that this concept of fair and transparent counterparties where you really create a more transparent world where somebody is willing to lend some money and somebody knows who's on the other side, vice versa, and we can start channeling, that is, is going to be very important, including sort of the, the unbanked and so on and lifting up societies. I truly Absolutely. believe if we get our job right, there's some of that. But, but maybe we're sort of running out of time because I want to pick your brain on something you are really a leader in too. And, and it's the whole diversity chapter, which is very dear to my heart. You're the example. So what did it take? Why do you believe it's so important? And how have you become even so successful in it, if I may ask? I think, Rob, very much maybe like your own background. I grew up in a relatively diverse background, you know, going to school and going to university. And then my first workplaces, as you said, both JP Morgan and the World Bank, you know, you had lots of people from lots of places in the world and lots of women. So it's almost like the opposite of most people. I was blind to diversity, so it was the norm for me. And what happened at Rock Creek is really bottom up. We try to hire the best people and then we try to invest in the best companies. And so what has happened in practice is that we have a team that is close to more than 70, 80% diverse. 
And we have an advisory board, people like Alan Greenspan, Diane Julius, I mentioned to you, Jessica Einhorn, who's also on the board of BlackRock, Laura Tyson, who's also the board of CBRE, was on the board of Morgan Stanley, and many other AT&T, etc. And then also Caroline Atkinson, who's on multiple boards and was at Google, NSC, etc., and Liakar Ahmed. So we have a lot of diversity on our board. Did we go out and look for diversity? No, really, we didn't even notice. And then we added up all the money, you know, we have 14 billion today, but we added up all the money we've invested since we started Rock Creek in 2003. And we were surprised ourselves to realize that we had invested more than six or seven billion in firms started by women or diverse professionals. And almost close to 1.5 billion today invested with firms started by women, whether it's a VC or a private equity firm or a equity or hedge fund or a bond shop or whatever. It was all bottom up. And I think one of the things that I would love to talk to you about at a later point, is the power of data. So we talked about ESG, we talk about inclusion. In both of them, a lot of the boards that I've been sitting on who have been interested in putting more money in ESG, a lot of people who say, you know, I want to find the best firms and those do include diverse firms. How do I get them? And data is lacking, in fact. The data in ESG or impactful investments is lacking, and the data on inclusive investments is lacking. So one of the things that we're working on, actually, at Rock Week is how do we create that in a more accessible way? We have a lot of data on it internally, and we use it, and it's highly proprietary. But how do we make that more available? You talked about what can we do all at an individual level so that it becomes available to everybody who wants to use it. So yeah. we'd love to get your ideas about that in our future conversation. Yeah, it's fascinating. I would even argue that let's create some indexes. Let's yes. try to get some good data. And let's also ask people to live by certain indexes. And numbers matter here and data matters. To your point, when everything's said and done, the data, the 7 billion invested, those are things that matter. So I would almost argue, and, and it's very controversial, I would almost say if a board does not have certain criteria in a certain environment, you cannot go public. I would even go of course, kind of aggressive when it comes to these standards. But I'm impressed with what you've done on diversity, and I'm glad you're so successful at it also, which is kind of important to those things go hand in hand. And maybe if you don't mind, we'll switch to something maybe more personal. And I remember, and this is a little anecdote, that somebody was in his late state of his life said to me, uh, Rob, you always have to ask me the question. I said, what's that? What would I do differently? Or ask me the question, <laughs> what have I learned? And, and I said, okay, I'll do it. But can I ask you the question? I did. And he said, I should have delegated more. And he started off with his four or five points and they stuck with me. And now I have this standard question to active people. And you're in the sort of prime of your career, of course, but what would you have done differently? And if you'd say, Rob, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. We have a glass mm -hmm. of wine here. This is my <laughs> advice. What would it be? <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting because it's a great question, Rob. And I had never had a coach. And a few years ago, Marshall Goldsmith, who's a wonderful coach, was kind enough to me under his wings and talk to me about work and life. And it was really interesting. We talked a lot about work and, you know, that's much more straightforward. But one of his most important questions, and he's written and published a lot on this subject, is what would you do differently if you were on your deathbed? And the most important thing is to live your life in a way where he said you have no regrets. So what are the things that you like to do that you have not done? And for a lot of us, I think, 
often professional lives and personal lives have moved in different directions. Exactly what you were saying earlier, where your values, you say one thing in your personal life and you truly believe in it. But then when you go to work, it's like you put on another hat and you behave in a different way. And you're in a world that maybe you don't love that much, but you are successful at. And I think the closer you bring those worlds to you, you will be happier. And if nothing shows that to you is the power of this pandemic. And I think what it reminds us is communities really matter. And our communities are families, the people we live with, the people, you know, in the world, really, you know, as you broaden your community, we're all very interconnected. And by making other people happy, you get happier. Now, if you said, what would I do differently? I actually have a 23-year-old and a 25-year-old. And I think you started being an entrepreneur at age 24, which is amazing. I don't know anyone who was that successful that early. But for me, maybe because I was a woman, I truly worked 24 by 7. And I did spend a lot of time with my kids, but I wish I had spent more time. Yeah. And so you have a chance to make up on that so you can spend more time with them. So, so that's the nice exactly. thing about some of the things here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, One of my it's sons been, is at home. Yeah. So it's uh, interesting. So that's what the, the pandemic brings that to you. You can spend more time. Uh, exactly. Um, so thank you very much. I know we have tons of other questions and it's sort of a privilege to get to know you over the podcast medium. So Sunny, it's been incredible. And I hope this is the beginning of a long visiting of our podcast. Absolutely. By the way, your podcasts are, are exciting. So, so well, you kind. Forward and so on. I hope that you can join us. I would never say no to an invite to a podcast, but I thought it's going to be as fascinating as this one. So thank you very much. Though. Thank you very much. It was much, a pleasure Rob. talking to you. Same. And, I look uh, forward to seeing you in person. Same here. Good luck very and soon. keep up the amazing work. Thank you very much. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motive partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.